Hello, welcome to Hope Church Harrogate's message of the week. If you'd like to connect with us, please head over to hopeharrogate.co.uk forward slash connect. We'd love to hear from you. I was with some other church leaders from our family of churches this week, had two days with leaders from around the UK, and uh, we were praying around the different um, nations of the world on Wednesday afternoon and the different things that our churches were, were seeing happen. And we heard from our friends in Ukraine. So we have a number of churches in Ukraine um, in different parts of that nation, which we're not really supposed to talk about where they are because, you know, there's a war going on and whatnot. But anyway, one of those such churches um, a few months ago had about 30 people meeting on a Sunday morning. Some others had fled the area um, and it's been a rough time for them. They said on Sundays, our numbers started to grow with people beginning to believe in Jesus. They got so many new people, they had to knock down a wall in their building to get them into the room. And they got to 80 from 30 on a Sunday morning. He said last Sunday, they had 120 people gathering in the room, worshipping Jesus, many of whom were new believers. It's pretty good, isn't it? I heard from two churches in the UK as well. Um, who uh, right now in the process of essentially being given or being given for peanuts buildings with which they're going to be able to serve their local community uh, for both of them after years of prayer. Isn't that exciting? There are many hard things in the world right now, but God is still God, still on the throne, still completing his purposes on the face of the earth. There is hope, is the series we're in. And uh, this morning, we are going to a section of Isaiah in the middle. Uh, Isaiah is a book of prophecy, and if you read it through, pretty much all of it's kind of poetic. That's the kind of genre of writing it is, Um, prophetic poetry, imagery and stuff. But in the middle of Isaiah, you find four chapters that are not like that at all. They are narrative. They are story. And that's where we're going this morning. Don't worry, we're not reading four chapters. We're going to read one of them. Um, but what we realize as we find this difference in a book is we go, oh, we should pay attention to this because it's important, right? If something changes dramatically, you go, oh, this might be important. And all four chapters are about Hezekiah, King Hezekiah. And King Hezekiah was a good king. King Hezekiah oversaw revival in the nation. His father had closed the temple King Hezekiah reopened the temple. His father had sent all the priests home. He reconsecrated and recommissioned the priests. The nation had forgotten about God, yet he called the nation to repentance and to celebration. In fact, he was the king of Judah, and he even invited the northern kingdom, all of Israel, to come and celebrate the biggest festival, Passover, with them. He was a remarkable king, oversaw amazing things. And the story is about him. Um, that I found in Isaiah. I found three places in the Bible. Here you go, I've sketched them out for you so that you can see. You find it in Isaiah 36 to 39. And in a minute, we're going to read Isaiah chapter 39. Find the same stories pretty much in 2 Chronicles 29 to 32 and 2 Kings 18 to 20. I am going to tell you lots of stuff about King Hezekiah this morning without reading stories. And if it whets your appetite, you might like to go look at these things. So if you're a note taker, feel free to scribble those things down. They are a really interesting set of stories. And really what we're going to find this morning is what happens when it all goes wrong for a good king. 
I don't know about you, sometimes it goes wrong, doesn't it? And that's what we're going to find this morning. And I'm going to prepare you at the end of this talk. We don't often do this, but sometimes we do here at Hope. I'm going to give a response call, and I'm going to invite people who have been particularly moved by the various things I'm going to touch on this morning to come to the front and act something out with God. No one's going to come pray for you. No one's going to embarrass you. We're going to be worshipping whilst it goes on. But if this morning you just feel the Spirit of God working in your heart, prompting you, probing you, I want to encourage you, there will be a moment for you to take a step of response at the end of this time. And I'll talk about that some more later. There are four chapters in Isaiah about King Hezekiah. And in those four chapters, there are three stories. What you need to know is that Isaiah, for good reason, has mixed the order of these stories up. They do not happen in the order he writes about them. He has changed the order because he wants to tell you that Assyria, who are the baddies, the enemy of God's people throughout the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, are about to fade away and a new enemy is going to rise up and that new enemy is Babylon. And so he positions the story we're going to read last because it talks about Babylon and it's introducing, as it were, the new enemy on the scene. First 39 chapters of Isaiah are called the Book of Judgment. The next set of chapters are called the Book of Comfort. Which one would you like to read? So he's transitioning, he's marking half time, as it were, shifting the enemy from one to the other. Um, and so there are, there, are, there are three stories. This is the order they go in. The second one you come across is actually the first one, and that's Hezekiah when he gets ill. You might know this story from Sunday school, if you grew up in the church, or um, maybe you've heard it preached on. He, Hezekiah is a good king, he's seen revival, and then he gets sick, and Isaiah the prophet comes to him and says, you are going to die. Put your house in order. And he turns to the wall, and he weeps bitterly, and he says, God, I've been faithful to you. Why must I die? Before Isaiah's even left the, the palace, God says to him, Isaiah, turn around, go back, tell Hezekiah, I'm going to give him 15 more years. And he's healed miraculously, gets 15 more years. The second story in order is the story of failure, which we're going to read in a few moments' time from Isaiah 39. And the third story is actually the first story that Isaiah puts in, which is about Sennacherib, who is the king of Assyria, who arrives with an army probably in the region of a couple of hundred thousand people, wipes out all the fortified cities in the north of Judah, and threatens Jerusalem. And I'll tell you some more about that story a little bit later. But let me put this in there. Don't worry. There's a little bit of hope in the middle of the story. So if you've got your Bible, why don't you come with me to Isaiah chapter 39? In fact, before I do that, let me tell you something. Last night, I bought 10 copies of these books on a whim. This is a really good book about Isaiah. Phil Moore um, is a pastor in our family of churches. Nicky Gumbel, leader of the Alpha Course, says, I enjoy reading Phil Moore's books. He writes about Jesus. <laughs> and the Christian life with perception, wisdom, and wit. There you go. I found this really helpful. 60 sessions. So if you want one of the copies of this book that I bought, you can finish it before the end of the year, even if you don't do it every day. That's, that's encouraging, isn't it? So every week we stand up and say, you should read Isaiah. And the other week, Dan asked, who's read Isaiah? And I put my hand up, and I thought some people would love to read Isaiah, but we've made them scared, so this book could help you. It's yours for £6.50 if you would like one. Come and tell me, and I will 
You give me £6.50, I'll give you a book. How about that? That's, that's how trade works. And, uh, and you can have one. I've got 10. I've already got my own. This is my copy. I've got 10 others. I don't need them. So please, if you would like to take on the challenge of reading Isaiah, take up my offer of a book. If £6.50 is too much for you, then smile at me nicely. I'm going to quote him later, and I'll do another sales pitch then. Okay? Isaiah 39. At that time, Marduk Baladan, son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent Hezekiah's letters and a gift. Isn't that nice? Because he'd heard of his illness and recovery. He's heard of the miracle God did. Hezekiah received the envoys gladly and showed them what was in his storehouses, the silver, the gold, the spices, the fine olive oil, his entire armory, and everything found among his treasures. If there was a soundtrack, right now it should be sounding very tense. There was nothing in his palace or in all his kingdom that Hezekiah did not show them. And now the soundtrack goes silent. And you know something bad is about to happen. Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah, now you know something bad is about to happen, and asked, what did those men say? And where did they come from? Um, um, for, 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 um, uh, from a distant land, Hezekiah replied. They came to me from Babylon. The prophet asked, what did they see in your palace? They saw everything in my palace. Hezekiah said, there's nothing among my treasures I didn't show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord Almighty. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your predecessors have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, who will be born to you will be taken away and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. That is bad news. Verse 8. The word of the Lord you have spoken is good. You can scratch your head at this moment. Hezekiah replied, For he thought there will be peace and security in my lifetime. When we read the Old Testament, um, it can sometimes be challenging, right? We have to do some translating. It's a different world, different time period. Jesus hasn't rocked up yet. They don't know everything we know. But in, in Romans 15, verse 4, Paul says this um, about everything that was written in the past. He says, all those things that were written in the past were written to teachers so that through the endurance taught in the Scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. So when we read this story, friends, we read it because it's to teach us something so that we can have endurance and hope. That's where we're going for today. It will take us a little while to get to endurance and hope. We're going to feel quite sad at first because it's a sad story, but we will get to endurance and hope. Is that okay? Excellent. Uh, the other bit we need to know about this story is that in one of the parallel accounts in 2 Chronicles 32 verse 31, the chronicler, the one who's written those books, he tells us at that, this point, God left Hezekiah to test him and to know everything that was in his heart. Well, that's what's going on in this story. God is testing him to know what's in his heart, what's being revealed. 
And as you might have guessed, what's revealed in the heart of Hezekiah is not good news for Hezekiah. He has some serious flaws. He is a good king. He has reformed the nation. He has overseen revival. He's done amazing, amazing things. Yet as good as he is, he still falls short. He still stumbles. He still sins. I'm going to sketch out four things very quickly for us that are revealed about Hezekiah's heart in this episode. Are you ready? Number one, the first thing that's revealed is that Hezekiah trusts people above God. What's going on in this story is that he's trying to woo Babylon to be his friends. Babylon woke up with a letter and some kind words and a gift. And he thinks, oh good, here's another um, empire. And we both have an enemy, which is called Assyria. And maybe we could be mates and fight Assyria together. And so he acts incredibly foolishly, trying to show off to win friends to solve a problem that he's got. He goes to Babylon instead of to God. He trusts people above God. A couple of weeks ago, Dan preached from Isaiah 28 about the cornerstone. At that point, God was telling the people off because they'd made a pact with Egypt. Do you remember? He told them, what you've done with Egypt is a covenant with death, and you'll be shown up for it. Exactly the same deal. The king of Judah tried to make friends with another nation to help them against Assyria rather than going to God. Who do you trust was the message of that chapter we looked at together. Pressure comes, an enemy is facing Hezekiah down, and what we discover is that he trusts people above God. I have a friend, he's a pastor in another church, and on WhatsApp, his status is, have you tried praying about it? Question mark. And I was talking to him once about it, and he said, anyone who comes to me with anything, I say, have you tried praying about it? And I refuse to talk to them about it until they've gone away and prayed about it. He said 50%, he reckons, of the people who come to him with problems come to him without having prayed about it. Because for many of us, our hearts as human beings are more inclined to trust people than God. We can see people. We kind of understand people some of the time. So he sends them away. He says, go pray about it. Come back if God doesn't help you. He says, lots of them don't come back. He wasn't sure if it's because they were offended or because God helped them. But <laughs> Have you tried praying about it? Where did you run to first, a person or God? It's challenging, isn't it? Hezekiah ran to people first. Second thing we discover about King Hezekiah is that he loves himself over others. Phil Moore, this is my, you know, my version of what he says, points out that the man who wept bitterly for his own life doesn't even shed a tear for the lives of his descendants. It's pretty good, isn't it? £6.50. <laughs> 60 sessions, you can get through them before the end of the year. We've still got 12 weeks, that's 72 days. Yours for a snip, £6.50, hand-delivered by me with a smile. Should definitely do it. If you're not reading the Bible right now, you should totally take me up on it. If you're reading the Bible but not enjoying it right now, you should definitely take me up on it. If you're reading the Bible and enjoying it right now but would like to read some more, you should definitely take me up on it. 
If more than 10 people come, I'll buy another 10. I'm really happy to help my friend out. Second thing we learn, he loves others over himself. He loves himself over others. He's told that his own flesh and blood are going to be taken away into captivity. He's told they're going to become eunuchs. It could mean one of two things. It might mean both. It either means they're getting castrated or prohibited from having families. Let me tell you something. Neither of those is good. They're going to be taken as slaves to a foreign land. Daniel is the name of one of these people. In that story? Meshach, something else, and Abednego. They rhyme, don't they? Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. I knew they rhymed. That's who we're talking about. It's his descendants, his flesh and blood. And yet what does he say when he's told that disaster is going to befall them? The word of the Lord that you've given me is good because I'm going to get away with it. That's, that's basically what's going on, right? He thought, well, I get peace and security. <laughs> Sucks to be you. He values himself over others. He worked bitterly for his own life and God delivered him with a miracle and gave him 15 more years. He gave him the sign that the sun went backwards on the staircase. Like, that is a miracle of nature. Think about what this man has seen. He's given this word and he accepts it with a shrug of the shoulders. Oh, what you've said is good. I'm going to be all right. Oh, it's tragic. He loves himself over others. Third thing is he thinks he knows better than God. What he's told is his descendants are going to get taken away and everything in his kingdom will be taken to Babylon. What did he hear? He thinks there will be peace and security in my lifetime. Hands up if you heard God say there will be peace and security in your lifetime, Hezekiah. It wasn't there. God said nothing about his lifetime at all. He just said the Babylonians are going to take all your stuff and your descendants. No guarantee about peace and security in his lifetime. All he knows is he's going to live for another few years, because God said he can have 15 more. Nothing about peace and security. Yet into that silence, Hezekiah goes, I know better than God. I get peace and security. It's dangerous hearing what God didn't say and claiming that he said it. Fourth, Hezekiah lives with hypocrisy in his life. Perfectly comfortable. His son, who takes over from him, is called Manasseh. Let me tell you something about Manasseh. He's known as the most evil king of Judah. Hezekiah's father had closed the temple and led the whole nation into idol worship, doing horrible things like bloodletting and sacrificing people. Hezekiah oversees revival, tears down all these false idols, breaks their poles, their high places, says, let's go back to the temple, makes it all work again. It's incredible. Whole nation is full of joy. They prosper. But his son undoes it all and goes further. What kind of a dad was King Hezekiah? In his prayer to God after he's healed, he says, parents, tell your children about the faithfulness of God. Yet we have no sign that he did that. In fact, it looks rather like he didn't. He, he held hypocrisy in his life. He had no care 
whatsoever for the legacy of his life. He cared only about his moment in time and himself. I told you we were starting sad. We're about to get a bit happier. Because the first thing that this teaches us, this story, is about the grace of God. In the Bible, Hezekiah is still called a good king. A king who loved God. And I don't get it. It doesn't look like it, but that's what the book says. Hezekiah was a good king. It says, in fact, he was the best king since Solomon. If you want to rank kings of Israel and Judah, you go David, Solomon, and then you get Hezekiah and Josiah tied third. That's the deal. That's how he's remembered. This is a story of significant grace because God doesn't leave him. He's trusted people above God, loved himself over others, thinks he knows better than God, cherishes hypocrisy in his life, but God doesn't leave him. Can I get a hallelujah? <laughs> Woohoo! God is kind. Hezekiah still has the opportunity to change. We have a God, friends, who's in the business of heart change. Let me tell you about Hezekiah's future after this event. King Sennacherib, leader of the Assyrians, wipes out dozens of fortified towns and cities in the north of Hezekiah's kingdom after this event, after what we've just read. A couple of hundred thousand troops, a few miles away. He sends some envoys and they shout to the people in the city, don't trust Hezekiah. You'd be stupid to trust in God. All the other gods haven't defeated us. No one can stop King Sennacherib. If you believe Hezekiah and you trust in your God, you will eat your own feces and drink your own urine. That's what the enemy is shouting outside the city. It's fun, the Bible, isn't it? Hezekiah goes around everyone. Don't reply. Trust the Lord. No one replies. The whole city trusts the Lord. Whew, he's changed. King Sennacherib sends some letters insulting Judah, insulting Hezekiah, insulting God. Hezekiah gets the letters. He goes to the temple. He texts Isaiah. He says, come pray with me. Isaiah comes. They lay the letters down in the temple, fall on their knees and say, God, you've got to help us. He's insulting you. God, for the sake of your name, deliver us. Changed a bit, hasn't he? Do you know what happens? They all go to bed. Whilst they're all in bed, the angel of the Lord comes and slays 185,000 Assyrians in their sleep. The clever people who know about this kind of thing will tell you it's the biggest massacre in one day ever. Nuclear bombs dropped on Japan, killed somewhere in the region of 30,000 people each. One night, 185,000 dead, Assyrians retreat. It's the end of the Assyrian Empire. Babylon rises. 
have a God who's in the business of heart change, friends. Hezekiah trusted people above God. But somehow, after the story we've just read, discovers that actually we should trust God first. And in his point of need, doesn't send for Egypt, doesn't send for Babylon, cries out to God. King Hezekiah, in the story we've just read, loved himself above others. Yet in this moment, where he probably could have protected himself, he chose to cry out to God, not for himself, as he had done when he wept in his sickness. Not even for the people, but for God's renown. He says, God, he's insulting you. If you don't come and show him, he'll think he's better than you. You've got to defend your name, God. Looks like God did. In our story, he thinks he knows better than God. Yet in the next story, he says, God, you do it. Seems to be hypocrisy free. Seems to be concerned about legacy in this moment. We have a God, friends, who's in the business of heart change. The message, the teaching, the thing we can learn from this story is that God is a God of grace. What we can learn from this story is that our failures and our flaws do not write us off. Our failures and our flaws do not write us off. Should we go once more and see if more than two people agree? Our failures and our flaws do not write us off. Our worst moments do not define us. Hallelujah. It's the grace of God. You're not defined by your worst moment, and in your worst moment, God does not leave you. His mercy is new every morning. Hezekiah screws up royally. The enemy's at the gates, his heart's exposed, what's discovered is disgusting. But he's not written off. It doesn't define him. There is grace and mercy. And we see the man changed. Hezekiah was a good king. He oversaw revival. He oversaw renewal. He saw Judah rise up to become better than it had been in decades. What this story teaches us is that that is not enough. You can have the best leader in your nation, in your family, in your church that you can dream of, but it still will not be enough. We don't need a good king. We need a perfect king. We need one who will trust God in every situation. We need one who will love others over themselves at every turn. We need one who is obedient to the Lord with every instruction. We need one who is faithful until their dying day. We need one who looks beyond their own life and walks with wisdom and a concern for legacy. Jesus, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame before sitting down at the right hand of the Father. That is the king that this story points to. David, Solomon, Josiah and Hezekiah, somewhere up here is the king that we should place our trust in. His name is Jesus. And he does say that we will know peace and security in the Lord, though perhaps not in the physical, in this life.
It seems easier to trust people, doesn't it, in life? And it is right that we trust one another. But our first allegiance, our greatest trust, our refuge is to be the king of grace. At the end of my preach this morning, as I said earlier, I will call a response. It may be that you're like, do you know what? My worst moments define me for too long and I need to receive grace. I thought my flaws, my failures had limited me. But I just heard Adam say that his mercies are new every morning and that our God is in the business of heart change. And if you know you need to receive grace this morning, then you can approach the throne of grace boldly and receive grace in your hour of need. And I'm going to give you the opportunity to do that in about 10 minutes' time. Because there's a second lesson from this story. One about facing our enemies. The verse in Chronicles, it troubles me slightly because it says the Lord leaves Hezekiah to test him and to see what's in his heart. That should trouble us a little bit, right? Does God test us? Is that what's going on in my struggle? I'm not sure that's what the Bible's saying in this moment. But I think what we can see in this moment is that there is an enemy at the gates. And when there's an enemy at the gates, what's in your heart is revealed. You know that, right? It's in the moment of pain, in the moment of suffering, in the moment of hardship, in the moment of threat, that what's truly inside comes out. What's truly inside is laid bare. That's what's going on for Hezekiah. And although we don't have a 200,000 strong army surrounding North Yorkshire right now, and it's pretty unlikely to happen, isn't it? I mean, it happened to my friends leading churches in Ukraine. And what was inside of them has been revealed. And tell you what, I've sat in awe as I heard them talk this week. We are unlikely to be invaded and surrounded by a foreign army with military. But friends, we are facing a roaring, snarling, fearsome and threatening enemy in our moment in time. It's been in power for a very long time just recently feels like it's taken a step up onto the front foot to shout at the people of God. And the enemy I'm talking about is the love of money. I don't know if you've heard any news recently. It's pretty difficult to hear the news without going, we're all going to die. I don't know whether you've looked at your bank account recently and gone, my shopping cost me about 20% more than it used to. I don't have 20% more money than I used to. What's going to happen? We live in a very difficult financial moment. And friends, it's important that we're honest about it. And we don't go, oh, it's okay. God will just look after us and we'll all be fine. It's going to be difficult. But where the world is shouting at people that you must be scared and therefore love money and cling onto it and hold it close to your heart, the Lord has a different set of instructions. Because Jesus said, you cannot serve both God and money. You will love one and hate the other. And so we cannot be a people who love money. I want to suggest to us that just as the heart of King Hezekiah was revealed 
So the threat of fear of money and love of money, fear of not having enough money, they're really the same thing, exposes stuff in our hearts. Next slide, please, David. It, it reveals itself when we find that we trust money above God. Where do you run in your moment of need? Have you tried praying about it? Do you work out how you might get more money before you pray about the fact that you need more money? It's challenging. If we were to look through your finances, not that I'm suggesting anybody will, but the Lord knows, would it reveal that you love yourself with money over other people? In a moment, we're going to read a little bit of the Bible, and it's going to tell you that God gives us everything for our enjoyment. Friends, it is not that we must be paupers and walk around in sackcloth and ashes. That isn't what the scriptures say. God gives us everything for our enjoyment. But how we spend our money reveals what's going on in our hearts. Does it show people that you love yourself more than everyone else? Or are you one in the image of Jesus who loves others? Thirdly, do we know better than God about money? I tell you what, there's an awful lot out there trying to educate you about money right now. Every time I boot up social media, which I try and do less and less in my life because it's not very nice, I get bombarded with stuff telling me I can get a side hustle going on and make like 20 grand a week without even trying. I mean, it's not in here. And it's okay to make 20 grand a week without even trying if you do it ethically. It's fine. Not a problem to do that. But if I go, oh, I'm going to accept the world's wisdom about money over God's wisdom with money, what I've done is I say, I know better than God. And God has quite a lot to say about how we handle our finances. The way we handle our finances in accordance with the teaching of God tells us whether we have a heart that loves money. Do you live with hypocrisy about money? Do you say one thing and do another? This is a very real enemy for us, and it's my job to help us understand enemies in our day to help us be formed in such a way that we aren't taken over by enemies. So I want to just read a few verses from the New Testament where Paul talks to people to undermine and undercut the threat of love of money. If you've got a Bible, why don't you turn with me? It will come on the screen, but you can see I'm not making it up if you open your Bible. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, 18, and 19. It says, Command those who are rich in this present world and you might not consider yourself rich, but pretty much everyone in Ephesus, the city that Paul's writing to, would tell you that you're rich. Just put it out there. Most people on the face of the earth today will tell you that you're rich, whether you feel it or not. And the reality is everything he's going to tell you doesn't really matter if you're rich or not. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant. You're not allowed to be arrogant if you're poor. Nor to put their hope in wealth. You're not to put your hope in wealth if you're poor. Don't put your hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put your hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. The silver bullet for love of money is generosity. Be rich in good deeds, be generous and willing to share. 
And if you, can we go back to the four things about love of money, David, please? If you see this and you go, that hurts, Adam. That's ever so slightly close to home, which I imagine is everyone, because it's me. Friends, the good news is that God has given us wisdom and instruction to slay this enemy while it sleeps. And it's this. Be rich in good deeds, be generous, be willing to share. Generosity is kryptonite to the love of money. If you love money, you cannot be generous. And whilst being generous, it's very difficult to love money. Because generosity runs to God first. Generosity loves others above ourselves. Generosity is following the teaching of God. This is key for our legacy. King Hezekiah just couldn't see his legacy. But for us, we must have a legacy mindset. We must think about the implications beyond ourselves. And generosity causes our money to have an influence beyond ourselves. If we want to have a legacy, we must be generous. Individually and as a church family. And there are two ways, practical things we can do to step into generosity this morning. The first is that we can resolve to trust God, not money, and to learn to think that way. Every week at Hope, we we have a liturgy for the offering. It goes like this. Now the baskets are going to be passed around. Most people are going to pass the basket on because everybody gives online by standing order or other such thing. If you're new here, we don't really want your money. You're just welcome to be amongst us. Please just pass the basket on. If you gift aid, please gift aid. And then everybody goes, I mean, some of you do put cash in the basket, but most people, like 90-something percent of people, give via standing order or bank transfer or whatever because it's 2022 and we're all a little bit scared of money after COVID. That's not true. That's me making a really bad joke at a bad moment in time. I should have been much more serious. It's just much more convenient to give online, in it? And so I don't know about you, but I turn off when I hear that. I'm like, oh, it's the giving bit. I, I give. It, it goes out. I don't even notice it. I don't have to do anything. Every month, money goes out of my bank account to church. I don't even think about it. Apart from I come to my budget and I go, oh, yeah, it went out. Imagine... If instead of that, where we all just a little bit apathetic, what we did was we repeated something like this. Holy Father, there is nothing I have that you have not given me. All I have and am belong to you, bought by the blood of Jesus. To spend everything on myself and to give without sacrifice is the way of the world that you cannot abide. But generosity is the way of those who call Christ their Lord who love him with free hearts and serve him with renewed minds, who withstand the illusion of riches which chokes the word, whose hearts are in your kingdom and not in the systems of the world. I am determined to increase in generosity until it can be said that there is no needy person among us. I am determined to be trustworthy with such a little thing as money that you may trust me with true riches. Above all, I am determined to be generous because you, Father, are generous. It is the delight of your daughters and sons to share your traits 
and to show what you're like to all the world. Amen. When we give without thinking, we miss an opportunity to have our thinking changed. We are those who must think differently about money than the world does. Because in the kingdom of God, money doesn't rule. But in the kingdoms of the earth, money does rule. And you can only love one ruler. You can only serve one ruler. In a moment, as we finish, I'm going to invite you to stand and to say with me those words as a statement of embracing generosity in your life. I'm not going to force you to. It's going to invite you to. The second thing you can do to grow in generosity is be generous. <laughs> it is like rocket science in here today. Uh, a friend in this church said to me a few weeks ago, the moment I start to feel money being an issue for me, I give money away. Just like that, it's become a reflex in my life because I never want money to get hold of me. Friends, I want to tell you, it's a really good discipline. If you feel the law of love of money in your life, if you know God's working in you right now, give some money away. I can point in the direction of multiple people in need of money right now. And if you need to be generous right now to become more generous, they would gladly receive your money. Because the purpose of God is that there would be no needy person amongst his church. The church is to be a light to the world. It's to be different to the world that we inhabit. Throughout history, the generosity of the church of God is what has preached loudest to the surrounding cultures. The lightness with which believers held their lives and their finances have had enormous reverberations throughout history. And it must be the same again in our day. Because if we face a cost of living crisis and the biggest financial challenge, perhaps of my lifetime, perhaps of other people's lifetimes, exactly the same way as the rest of the world, then we're not following Jesus. But I'm a follower of Jesus. And so I want to face it down in a different way than the rest of the world because I trust God and not money. When we face down enemies, our hearts are revealed. And it may be that you feel a little bit uncomfortable in your seat this morning. That's been my aim, if I'm honest. Because we don't need a good king, we need the perfect king. We have all got failures and flaws. But the good news is that God does not leave us just because we stumbled or fell. But that his mercy is new every morning. His grace endures forever. Nothing can remove you if you are a follower of Jesus from the hand of the Father. That is a good word. Praise the Lord. I'm so thankful for it in my life. If he left people who messed up, he would have left me many times. But he's promised he will not. And he's promised he will not leave you. And it may be this morning that you've believed that your failures, your flaws, your stumbling, your falling has caused God to leave you, has defined you, has limited you. And the word of God to you this morning is his grace is sufficient for you. We have a God who's in the business of heart change. And if you need heart change this morning, I'm going to invite you in a moment to come to the front of the room. No one's going to pray with you. There's no ministry team. No one's going to touch you. 
You're going to stand in your own space. You might like to kneel. And I'm going to invite you, just like King Hezekiah did in the very next episode, to pretend to lay out what it is you need God to do. Like that. And then say, God, help me. He can kill 185,000 enemies in one night. It may be as we've gone through these things and you've been challenged about the position of money in your life and what your heart is orientated towards, you've gone, I need to do something. Well, friends, in a moment, we're going to recite that liturgy again. I want to encourage you, if money has law in your life, give it away. Let's break it. But you might also like to take a step this morning. Come down the front as we sing our final song. Just lay it before the Lord and say, God, my money is yours. You purchased everything I have and everything I am with the blood of Jesus. There's enough there that you don't need to be embarrassed about coming forward. What I've not said is if you're in debt, come to the front. Or if you're rubbish with money, come to the front. Or if you're a toe rag and a disgusting individual, come to the front. What I've said is if you need help in any of these areas, which we all need help in, maybe you'd like to come and call on the Lord to help you this morning. So please do not feel embarrassed. Do not feel ashamed. In fact, as you come and as you lay it before the Lord, it's my conviction that shame will break this morning and that you'll walk back free. So we're going to do two things. First thing we're going to do is I'm going to invite everyone to stand and recite the generosity liturgy with me. The second thing I'm going to do is invite people to come to the front and lay their stuff before the Lord and let him rescue them. Somewhere in there, it'd be really nice if Rob came back on the stage and started strumming on his guitar. Thanks, mate. Friends, it's an invitation. There's no judgment if you don't say it. I recognize these words are powerful, and you might not be able to say them with integrity. If that's the case, go home, pray about it. But if you're like, I want to be generous, I want to slay love of money in my life, I want to be part of the light that shines into the world that says the way of God is better than the systems of the world. Can I invite you to pray this along with me? I'm going to drive through it like I read it before. We're not doing any of that namby-pamby, like slow, monotonous reading. We're going to read it like people actually read stuff, okay? Ready? Holy Father, there is nothing I have that you have not given me. All I have and am belong to you, bought by the blood of Jesus. To spend everything on myself and to give without sacrifice is the way of the world that you cannot abide. But generosity is the way of those who call Christ their Lord, who love him with free hearts and serve him with renewed minds, who withstand the illusion of riches which chokes the word, whose hearts are in your kingdom and not in the systems of the world. I am determined to increase in generosity until it can be said that there is no needy person among us. I am determined to be trustworthy with such a little thing as money that you may trust me with true riches. Above all, I'm determined to be generous because you, Father, are generous. It is the delight of your daughters and sons to share your traits and to show what you are like to all the world. Amen. 